Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Private Eye Live. Um, very exciting. We're on the set of Waste, which I hope isn't going to be your reaction to your evening this evening. Um, this is where Private Eye comes off the page and onto the stage. And you know the form. I'd like you um, to enjoy the show, possibly come to the book signing afterwards, where the annual is on sale. Excellent review of this year, some of which we'll be doing for you tonight. But first, let's introduce my extraordinary cast. Ladies and gentlemen, could we start with Mr. Lewis McLeod? <laughs> Ms. Jan Ravens! Yay! Mr. John Sessions! Yay! And Mr. Harry Enfield! We start with a seasonal offering. Private Eye, as you know, is uh, world-renowned for its scoops, and we've got hold of the transcript of the Downton Abbey Christmas special. Um, it's uh, in this week's Private Eye, and um, I'm delighted to say that after the um, rather gory episode with Lord Grantham at dinner, Julian Fellows has excelled himself. Here we are, Downton Abbey Series 94 Christmas episode. In the middle of dinner with Neville Chamberlain, the entire family are surprised when an alien bursts out of Lord Grantham's chest, <laughs> showering the diners with blood and entrails. Oh, really? Says the Dowager Countess. If I wanted something unpleasant to spoil my dinner, I would read Mr. Ramsay MacDonald's Labour Party Manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Crawley, however, is charmed by the newcomer at the table and remonstrates with the out-of-touch aristocrat. She says, Times are changing, Lady Violet. Just because someone comes from a distant galaxy and looks a bit different, there's no need to be prejudiced against them. This is 1927, you know. <laughs> Kindly Lord Grantham then adopts the alien as his son and heir and appoints him as a state manager in charge of the pigs, hoping that one day he will marry his daughter, Lady Mary. Yes, I have fallen in love with the alien. But I do hope he doesn't go on a killing spree, leaving a trail of half-eaten bodies below and above stairs. This is exactly what happens. <laughs> but when the police arrive at Downton Abbey, Butler Carson has a surprise. It's the police, your lordship. They've come to arrest Mr. Bates for the murders. <laughs> it looks like Mr. Bates will hang at Christmas rather than the alien. But then, in another surprise twist, Julian Fellows makes a confession. I've been getting away with murder <laughs> for ten years. <laughs> and now it's simply got to stop. And with any luck it will. Ladies and gentlemen, Downton Abbey. <laughs> Uh, it's now time for Dumb Britain, which is a compilation of real answers to real quiz questions on our national television shows. This is compiled by Marcus Berkman. And remember, these are all real answers. All of these come from The Chase, and we're very lucky to have presenter Bradley Walsh with us to ask the questions. Which English king was defeated at the Battle of Hastings in 1066? Napoleon. What name links a ship on which a famous mutiny took place and a chocolate bar? Cadbury's. <laughs> Cream spot and 24 spot are species of what flying insect? Owl. <laughs> what are people from Jordan called? Saudi Arabian. <laughs> West Indian bowler Michael Holding comes from which country? West India. <laughs> Which queen was the first reigning monarch to send a transatlantic telegram? Elizabeth I. <laughs> How many wheels did a penny farthing have? Twelve. <laughs> Grazie per la musica is Italian for the title of which ABBA song? 
Waterloo. <laughs> Xenon and what other element contain the letter X in their name? Xylophone. <laughs> the Connemara pony is named after an area in which country? India. What is the first name of Cameron, the youngest British Prime Minister this century? Cameron Diaz. <laughs> <laughs> Which country do Muslims go to on a pilgrimage? Ramadan. <laughs> Which London mayor supposedly became rich due to his cat's rattling abilities? Boris Johnson. <laughs> And uh, just to prove we're not um, too populist, we do go upmarket. Private Eye is the only magazine with a resident poet. He's an obituarist, what we call a threnodist. It is, of course, E.J. Thrib. And here we have his first poem, In Memoriam, Christopher Lee. So, farewell then, Christopher Lee. Yes, you were Dracula. You were 93 when you died, or was it 473? Now you are out for the count. <laughs> but are you really dead? Perhaps we should put a stake through your heart just to make sure. The sun has finally set on your career, so we'll see you up and about very soon. <laughs> E.J. Thrib. <laughs> we don't just have a poet, we have a resident romantic novelist. Dame Sylvie Crin, um, who's been responsible for a number of great romances, The Heir of Sorrows, The Duchess of Hearts, but this, I think, is probably the greatest romance of this, or probably any other century. This is Never Too Old. The story so far, octogenarian media mogul Rupert Murdoch <laughs> is showing his new trophy girlfriend to the world at the Rugby World Cup final. Rupert cracked open another ice-cold tinny of Castlemaine 4X wife lager <laughs> and sighed contentedly as the amber liquid trickled down his ancient gullet. He thought to himself, Yes, I've found the elixir of youth and she is six foot eight inches tall with legs as long as a didgeridoo and a mane of blonde hair that is lasher and blonder than Shane Warne's mullet. <laughs> What's the name again? <laughs> oh, yes. Leggy Hall. That's it. For a minute there, Rupert had forgotten, and not in a Leveson way. <laughs> so... So, what are the rules, Rupee? Inquired the husky southern belle who'd once been on the arm of Mick Jogger and Brian Roxy. He's very simple, Leggy, Rupert explained. You get down in the dirt, grab your opponent by the gulagongs, and give him a bloody good kicking. And what about rugby? She asked. Rupert smiled, and his ancient walnut features cracked into lines of loving laughter. <laughs> you, Leggy, are a classy dame. You're one of the hottest sheilas since Germain Greer. He said as he planted a kiss on her Texan rosy cheek. Leggy giggled and whispered. Really, Rupee, let's hope the global media don't intrude on our private moment of passion. But the nonplussed, soon-to-be nonagenarian was too proud of his romantic conquest to worry about such niceties. I'll make bloody sure they do, he thought to himself, imagining the headlines in all his papers around the world, from the humble Daily Boomerang in Dundee's Crocodile Creek. Randy Roop has a new notch on his wobble board to the mighty London Times of London. Shares in News Corp's rise as Murdoch demonstrates renewed vitality. <laughs> in fact, thought Rupert, he'd better text all his editors immediately. But when he entered his secret password, Rebecca forever, <coughs> he noticed an odd anonymous voicemail with no identifying number. 
I think my bloody phone's been hacked, Leggy, he exclaimed. It's just a voicemail, Rupee, soothed the world's sexiest 59-year-old, who'd already been there and done that with Mick Jiggy and Brian Foxy. <laughs> she tapped the play button and suddenly a familiar voice rang out loud and clear just as the crowd went silent. Yo, dirty old man, <laughs> Lupert! Reggie Ho is just a fortune cookie hunter! It was Wendy, the dragon lady from the Deng dynasty. <laughs> Yo, rock ridiculous! <laughs> Rupert slumped back in his VIP seat, and then the announcement over the tannoy made it even worse as the All Blacks squared up to the Wallabies. And now, ladies and gentlemen, would you please be silent as we watch the world famous hacker, Mr. Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> <laughs> Not only romantic novels, we also encourage the diary form. And Private Eye is very lucky in having exclusive rights to the diary of Sir John Major, aged 77 and three quarters. Um, this is his secret diary written during the election. Monday. <laughs> As the country's leading and most respected elder statesman, I have decided that, in my judgment, I am the only man who can save the United Kingdom before it is too late. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is why I have today arranged to make a very important speech at the prestigious Ilkley Moor Bowls Club. <laughs> As I said to the 12 veteran Bowls enthusiasts in front of me in Ilkley Moor, what the Scottish National Party wants to do is tear apart the country we all love, the England of old ladies drinking warm beer as they fall off their bicycles, <laughs> on the way back from communion in the evening mists. There was not a dry eye in the clubroom as I issued this rallying call to the entire nation. Wake up, Britain, I concluded, at which several of my audience did exactly that. <laughs> Tuesday, she really is the most appalling woman, I exclaimed to my wife, Norman, as I read the latest front page stories about this Scottish lady, Mrs. Sturgeon, who is apparently going to take over the country as I warned everyone in my historic speech on Tuesday. Well, you would know, replied Norman. You certainly are an expert when it comes to appalling women politicians who get into bed with unsuitable partners and try to break up long-standing unions. This was neither relevant nor helpful at this hour of need, when the nation is facing its greatest danger since the Maastricht Treaty. Oh, yes. Uh, Sir John Major. It's now time to introduce a uh, privatised resident parodist, the great Mr. Craig Brown. Hey. Tonight, as is suitable for the National Theatre, Craig will be channeling the great playwright Sir David Hare. Uh, this is a series of unpublished early chapters from his memoirs. Something of my father's condescending attitude to me became apparent on the morning of my fifth birthday. I'd been going through the very real effort of opening the meagre pile of half a dozen presents that my lower middle class parents had grudgingly assembled in a damp little corner of their semi-detached house in, of all places, Bexhill-on-Sea. Even at that young age, I was cursed with the twin burdens of excessive numeracy and heightened sensitivity. This ensured that I was able to calculate that the percentage of my father's income from his dull suburban job that had been diverted into my tawdry little pile of presents was so pitiful, probably less than 5%, as to render any further communication with the man an act of capitulation to the capitalist system. <laughs> On one occasion, my father told me that if I wanted ice cream later, I would have to clear away my supper plate. The scales fell from my eyes. <laughs> From that moment on, I was to feel an instinctive distrust of those in authority. Years later, when it came to accepting a, knight a knighthood in 1999, I did so only grudgingly, 
making my disapproval abundantly clear by refusing to go down on more than one knee to the Queen. <laughs> Leaving a cinema at the age of 10, I stepped out onto the uninteresting streets of Bexhill-on-Sea, straight into a large puddle. The shock has never left me. <laughs> Looking down at my damp feet, I was overcome by tears. They were prompted by a sudden, blinding awareness that the country I had once proudly known as Great Britain was now reduced to a sodden pair of Star Trek sandals. <laughs> it had always been a drawback to see life differently from other people. My parents, cocooned in their narrow little lives, simply dismissed my discomfort, airily saying that they would dry the shoes when we get home. As an artist, I knew that nothing would ever be the same again, but my, my howls of protest, not only for myself, but for all those who were suffering and would continue to suffer from soggy start-right sandals, were always doomed to fall on deaf ears. It is this oversensitivity that makes being a writer such agony. That unbearable incident in the pouring rain at Bexhill was perhaps the most bruising of my life, but without it, my friends argue, I might never have written The Absence of Shoes, my seminal 1977 play about Suez, starring, starring Peter Bowles as NASA and, and Fenella Fielding as the Irish nationalist hunger striker. <laughs> so it was that The Absence of Shoes opened at the Royal Court to a volley of abuse from critics craven to the vindictive demands of their proprietors. True to form, the Telegraph critic described it woundingly as one of Hare's best plays. <laughs> Knowing full well the emotional damage to be wrought on the creative artist by damning with faint praise. Years later, when the absence of shoes was, was revived here at the National, with Dame Anna Neagle in the role of first factory worker, The Guardian took pleasure in damning it as a work of flawed genius. They never bothered to print the word flawed in bold capitals, but they might as well have done. I spent the next five days sticking my head down the ensuite lavatory of the crumbling five-story house to which we had recently moved in the dingier part of Belgravia. And this, this was the true legacy of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> More poetry, this time of an international flavour. This is Thrib again in memoriam Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore's strongman. So farewell then, Lee Kuan Yew. You were famous for banning chewing gum. Disappointingly, for lovers of freedom and irony, you did not come to a sticky end. <laughs> From poetry, obviously, to football. Um, and we move on to commentator balls. This used to be called Coleman balls. This is the real things that sports commentators actually say when they're commenting on football. Owen Hargreaves on BT Sport. There's only one team you want to play for at this minute, and that's Bayern Munich and Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Redknapp, Sky Sports. Costa is a vital cog in the jigsaw. <laughs> Lee Dixon, ITV. In super slow-mo, it looks as if it's not going that fast. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Allardyce, Talk Sport. Cutting out those simple goals that Everton scored are the icing on my agenda. <laughs> David Pleat, Radio 5 Live. These West Brom players look like giraffes in their black and white stripes. <laughs> Is it giraffes that are black and white? <laughs> Mark Cooper, BBC Wiltshire. It's a slap on the wrist for us, and we'll take it on the chin. <laughs> Danny Higginbottom, BT Sport. The Warrington players can hang their heads high. 
Connor McNamara, Radio 5 Live. They have a rich tradition in this competition, but most of that tradition is in the past. <laughs> Jerry Armstrong. Jerry Armstrong, Sky Sports. The temperature is getting frayed as the clock ticks. <laughs> Sol Campbell, LBC. You have mavericks. You have people who want to go off on a tandem. <laughs> Steve McManaman. They need to improve if they're going to get better. <laughs> Louis Van Gaal, Radio 5 Live. That is the most pleasing thing about the game. We have seen the arousal of the fans. <laughs> Sam Matterface, TalkSport. Chris Ramsey has slumped to his knees and put his hands in his head. <laughs> Danny Mills, Radio 5 Live. I like Leighton Baines in that position. He's got legs either side of him. <laughs> Jonathan Overend, Radio 5 Live. Well played by Birmingham ladies, who drew 0-0 with Manchester City women, despite sending the whole second half with only 10 men. <laughs> and a final non-football one, which comes from none other than Prince William on BBC One. Doing a job as a helicopter pilot is a really important point. It keeps me grounded. <laughs> <laughs> Commentator Balls. And thank you to Simon for compiling them. Now, um, more death, I'm afraid, um, but at least it's an upmarket arts review. Uh, Private Eye long-term contributor Brian Sewell gave us his final arts review, this one of The Pearly Gates. <laughs> Much against my better judgment. I had the misfortune last night to find myself standing in front of one of the most tawdry, tete, and meretricious works of art I ever saw in my life. <laughs> We've all heard foolish and purblind pangendrums <laughs> enthusing about the supposedly divine quality of the grandiose architectural folly colloquially known as the pearly gates. But nothing on earth could have prepared me for the unutterable vulgarity of this shoddy installation with its absurd pearl-themed ornamentation, too facile suburban even to meet the merit the term Rococo, <laughs> masking what are only too obviously some dismally functional and perfectly ordinary gates. <laughs> and the real tragedy is that behind those very gates are some of the greatest figures in the entire history of Western art, any of whom could have been relied upon to design something infinitely more elevated and aesthetically satisfying, including the incomparable Michelangelo Buonarroti. <laughs> I pointed this out to the bearded security <laughs> man, Stan. <laughs> I pointed this out to the bearded security man standing next to the gates. Peter, somebody. I didn't catch his second name. <laughs> But he seemed a simple soul, and obviously had no idea what I was talking about. Brian Sewell, the late. <clears throat> Wasn't just a year of death, also of birth. We had the birth of Princess Charlotte, a royal baby. And Private Eye had our royal commentator on hand, Pippa Middleton to give you those important tips for a second baby. Okay, one, if you're thinking of having a second baby, make sure you've got one already. 
Uh, otherwise, it won't be the second, but the first. And don't have two already, because then it'll be the third. I, I know it sounds complicated, but actually it really isn't. <laughs> two. When the second baby arrives, give it a different name from the first baby. <laughs> I.e., if the first baby's called George, don't call her George or Georgina. I mean, you'd be amazed at the confusion that sort of thing has caused, my friends. Three, baby photos are lovely, so make sure lots of people take photos of your baby. One way to ensure this is to be a member of the royal family. And if you aren't already one of these, I'll just marry someone who is. Four, you want your child to grow up in a loving environment, so choose its nanny carefully. Five. Yeah, that's about it. Ciao. <laughs> it wasn't just Pippa. The Daily Mail weighed in with one of its heartwarming 94-page royal baby souvenir supplements. Um, and this is how it went. Page one. Charlotte. What a beautiful name for a princess. Page two. The curse of Charlotte. <laughs> Ten royal Charlottes who came to a sticky end. <coughs> Page three. Will's loving tribute to his late mother, Diana. Page four. The ghost of doomed Diana will haunt princess forever. <laughs> Page five. A beautiful baby sister for toddler George. Page six. How sibling rivalry with jealous George will poison Charlotte's life. Page seven. The future charmed existence of the new younger royal. Page eight. How miserable Margaret drank herself to death and so will hapless Harry because they have no royal role. Page nine. How does Kate look so fresh and beautiful? After giving birth. Page 10. Millions of pounds of public money wasted on Team Kate's desperate afterbirth makeover. <laughs> Page 11. Princess Charlotte's stunning heirloom shawl. Page 12. Cheapskate royals wheel out same old moth-eaten second-hand baby wrap. <laughs> Page 13. Delighted Queen meets her great-granddaughter. Page 14. Why was Queen elbowed out of the picture by ghastly pushy Granny Carol and the Middleton Mafia? Page 15. How Princess Charlotte will live happily ever after. Page 16. How Princess Charlotte will go off the rails, undermine the monarchy, embarrass the nation, plunge Britain into anarchy and cause house prices to fall. <laughs> <laughs> the Daily Mail! <clears throat> Obviously, second only to a royal birth was uh, the dismissal of Jeremy Clarkson. Uh, Private Eye, as ever, managed to have access to the final edition of Top Gear, the episode that you will never see. <laughs> in that episode, instead of a star in a reasonably priced car, we have... An unreasonably priced star in a fracas. <laughs> yup, it's me, the head honcho, the bee's knees, the dog's bollocks. And I'm in the driving seat of the Mini Fracker, which may sound small, but believe you me, it packs a hell of a punch. <laughs> the Fracker is hotter than a cold meat platter and could cost an eye-watering £150 million, which is almost as much as my weekly salary. <laughs> I'm not at all happy with the handling, and I'll tell you, the suspension was a disappointment. <laughs> but once I put my foot down, bang, I was gone. Faster than a chef clearing off after doing a long day's work and leaving yours truly, offering his producer a knuckle sandwich. <laughs> so it's goodbye to Auntie Beeb and hello to Amazon. Probably the richest company in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Top Gear. <laughs> we do realise that something actually happened this year. There was an election. And Private Eye managed to print a condensed version of the entire election coverage in one piece. This is it, the whole of the election coverage of the year. <laughs> the Daily Mail. Ed Miliband is weird. 
The Daily Mirror. David Cameron is posh. The Times. Polls show Ed Miliband is weird. The Guardian. Polls shows David Cameron is posh. The Independent. Cameron is weird and Ed Miliband is posh. The Daily Express. Nigel Farage is not weird or posh. The Financial Times. Markets plunge as weird posh index rises. <laughs> and of course, the Daily Telegraph. Forget the election. Here's a huge picture of Cressida Bonas not wearing many clothes. <laughs> <coughs> we did do slightly more coverage than that, and, and many of you may have forgotten Nigel Farage, uh, but he did appear. Here was coverage of one of his finest hours. UKIP leader Nigel Farage today gave his 100% backing to his party's latest choice to fight the key Essex marginal of Baselbrush. <laughs> Mr Kevin Barrelscrape is the 94th prospective candidate adopted for the seat in the past 93 days, following a succession of embarrassments when one after another, each of the previous candidates was discovered to be either a serial fantasist, a closet racist, a committed homophobe, or an inveterate fiddler of his expenses. Mr Farage said this to thousands of waiting newsmen. I'm right behind Mr Barrelscape, who tells me he has a double first in nuclear physics from Oxford College, Cambridge, um, that many of his best friends are chinky poos and poofters, um, and that it is at least ten years since he did time for accounting irregularities. <laughs> Mine's a large one, yes I'm drinking and yes I'm bragging. <laughs> Thanks to Mr Farage. Uh, time for more poetry, uh, get away from politics uh, briefly, and it's In Memoriam, Omar Sharif, the legendary screen actor. So farewell then, Omar Sharif, star of Lawrence of Arabia, and Dr. Zivago, and lots of other films. <laughs> you were in Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand and in Barbara Streisand during Funny Girl. <laughs> you were in Myerling with Catherine Deneuve and in Catherine Deneuve <laughs> during Myerling. You were in The Burglars with Diane Cannon and in yeah, Diane... I, th I think we've got the idea. Thank you very much. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, in the middle of the election, we're going back there, um, you'd imagine that Boris Johnson might have been very active. However, he <coughs> went to America uh, for reasons known only to himself, and there he met Hillary Clinton. Luckily, he sent us back a message about his meeting with Hillary. Fwah! <laughs> Cripes! Fwah, fwah, fwah! <laughs> uh, 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 Mrs. Clinton and I got on like a White House on fire! Uh, Mrs. C has obviously got a thing about chaps who put it about a bit. Uh, the sort of fellow who wants to be a good egg, but has real trouble, real trouble keeping his trousers on. <laughs> anyway, where was I? The good old US of A! That's the place. Tall buildings, lots of hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> What on earth are you doing in America, she asked me. Isn't there some sort of election going on? No flies on Hillary, poor. Or indeed on her husband's trousers. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I said I, I'm over here to give my old school chum Dumbo Dave uh, every possible chance to lose the election his way uh, without me being accused of landing him in the soup. And of course, Hills, quoth I, flashing her the old Bojo Beamer. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I want to make up for describing you once in the Daily Torygraph as a sadistic nurse with a mental hospital. <laughs> what I meant to say was, <laughs> Hello, matron! <laughs> My temperature's rising. Uh, what's this swelling south of the border? Nurse, the screens. Uh, so, that's all sorted. Now we can get on with the special relationship. Hands across the water and footsies under the table. <laughs> Uh, God, I tell you, I love foreign affairs. Ding dong! Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. Boris Johnson! <laughs> <laughs> the election, of course, had a surprise result. Um, and no one more surprised than the Tories, um, except the pollsters. 
um, all political analysts got it wrong. However, Labour previous leaders had an explanation. We had two of them um, in private eye explaining what had happened in the election. First, Neil Kinnock. No, I totally and utterly and utterly and totally <laughs> reject the view put forward by the public, very publicly in the election, that they utterly and totally and totally and utterly reject the Labour Party, which they don't. <laughs> what they meant to do was to vote overwhelmingly for a total and utter and utter and total Labour victory of the type I won in Sheffield <laughs> in 1992. <laughs> As I said to the public then, and I say to it now, you're all right, wee, <laughs> damn your eyes. <laughs> and no real comment on the election would be complete without Tony Blair. This was what he said. Hey, who won three elections? <laughs> me, me, and me. <laughs> and who didn't? Everyone else. <laughs> and you know what the difference is? Me. <laughs> Which suggests the need for a real reassessment of Labour Party policy. It's either me or you end up with the Tories. Which is the same thing. <laughs> That'll be 240,000 quid, please. <laughs> Plus VAT. <laughs> Cheers. Tony Blair! <laughs> Uh, there is one party that did worse than Labour, and um, Private Eye covered this by telling a little morality tale. It was Aesop's Fable, uh, written by Vince Fable. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this is The Fox and the Scorpion, and it's read for us by Nick Clegg. We're very lucky to have Aww. him here, largely because <laughs> he hasn't got anything else to do. <laughs> The Fox and the Scorpion. There was once a scorpion who <laughs> wanted to cross a river. And he asked the fox if he could ride on his back. No, said the fox, you'll sting me to death as soon as we get to the other side. No, I won't, said the scorpion. Just carry me across the river and all will be well. The fox agreed, but just as they were nearing the far bank, the scorpion said, thanks for the lift, Nick, and stung him to death. But as the fox died, he spluttered, I thought we were friends. You promised not to kill me. Yeah, whatever, said the scorpion. But I'm a conservative. That's what we do. <laughs> and the moral of the story is, beware of people who like fox hunting. <laughs> Thanks to Aesop there. Uh, yes, there were important news items, particularly internationally. The whole Middle East situation blew up, and Private Eye tried to uh, cover that sensibly by reframing it as a classic children's story. This is The Famous Five Go to Syria <laughs> by Enid Blyton. Oh, do hurry up, Anne, cried George impatiently. The boys will be waiting for us to catch our flight. You've been putting that yashmak on for simply ages. I'm ready now, said, said Anne, standing up beside her cousin. Let's go and find the boys, and we can have a jolly nice adventure as slave brides for Isis. The famous five had thought of everything. They'd stolen all of Aunt Fanny's precious jewellery and pawned it. Then they'd used that cash to buy ginger beer and plane tickets to Turkey. This was going to be their most spiffing adventure yet. I'm jealous of you two girls, grumbled the jihadist Julian. <laughs> <laughs> when you run away to join the glorious caliphate, you'll be the naive innocence unwittingly lured into Isis's grasp. He's jolly well right, you know, added Dick. Whereas Julian and I will be pilloried as <laughs> radicalised teens revelling in the brutality and savagery of Isis. I can't wait to get to Syria and enjoy lashings and lashings of lashings. <laughs> <laughs> Laughed Anne. Just take care not to lose your head. <laughs> Insisted Dick. To be continued. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for that. For a minute, I thought it might be bad taste. Um, <laughs> 
There were other big international events. The Greek economy kept tanking, and it ended up in a big referendum. Private Eye wanted to keep its readers properly informed about what that Greek vote really meant. So here it is, our take. Greek vote, what does it mean for the UK? Your questions answered. I bought a tea towel when I went to Crete last year. Can I still use it to dry the dishes? It depends, innit? <laughs> Larger tea towels can only be used if they are decorated with columns and vases. Smaller tea towels with bunches of grapes and donkeys are no longer acceptable, innit? <laughs> and they gotta be cut up for dusters, don't it? <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> I am a big fan of Vangelis. Can I still listen to my Chariots of Fire CD? No. All Vangelis soundtracks are now outside the official EU preferred easy list playlists. <laughs> you may hand in your CDs at your local HMV, <laughs> where they're going to be exchanged for Conchita Verse Sings Serge Gainsbourg. Or a box set of German umfa music. <laughs> My parents brought me a bottle of something from Lesbos. It's blue, and it's been in the back of the pantry for eight years. Because it tastes like lighter fluid. <laughs> what should I do with it? The governments of Greece will be repatriating all the blue drinks over the next few months, innit? <laughs> to aid further negotiations. Please place in a waterproof box by your door so they can be collected by an unshaven man carrying a spade. <laughs> and he will give all undrunk blue drinks to Mrs. Merkel <laughs> in part payment of the 80 trillion euro debt. Are you built? It's time to go back to the diary format to get one of the greatest diarists and time to welcome back the great Mr. Craig Brown. <laughs> and for some reason today he's channeling, this has nothing to do with me, uh, the eminent diarist, Mr. Piers Morgan. <laughs> to London's exclusive Ivy restaurant, which has reopened after a massive refurb paid for by my plentiful ordering of deliciously expensive Bordeaux-style claret wines over the years. In the corner of the room, I spied Hollywood legend and all-round good bloke, George Clooney. Glad to see you're able to afford the ivy, George, I texted him cheekily. Or will you be making your lovely lady wife stick to the set menu? Only kidding, mate. I should have remembered that as cool guys go, George is just about the coolest of them all. You see, he didn't even look up. In fact, he didn't even pick up his phone. Instead, he just kept on talking to his charming wife, Amal. And who can blame him? She really is the proverbial 100% stunner and with brains to match. Later, when I got back to our sumptuous home, I told my own ravishing wife about my oh-so-cheeky text to George Clooney. But you don't know him and you haven't got his number. <laughs> came her miserable attempt at a put-down. Maybe not, I came back, quick as a flash. But don't tell that to George. <laughs> Thursday. I spotted legendary Hollywood actor Morgan Freeman at a neighbouring table in the exclusive Nobu restaurant on London's high-flying Park Lane. I interviewed him on my legendary CNN show 18 months ago. The two of us had struck up a real bond, resulting in a fabulous tweet from the guy's PR department with details of the time of the program and so on. An honor accorded only to the privileged few. So I couldn't resist strolling over and giving him the surprise of a lifetime. Morgan, old buddy, how you doing? I exclaimed, slapping him on the shoulder. In response, he looked back at me with a blank expression. Do I know you, he quipped, straight-faced. It was only later that I realized that this guy is one of the all-time greatest practical jokers in the world of showbiz. I tweeted him 
I tweeted his brilliant put-down to my 20 million followers on Twitter. Got to hand it to you, Morgan, mate. You win again, I added genially. Memo to self. When a Hollywood legend becomes your best mate, remember to keep your wits about you. Saturday, the doorbell rings. Guess what? It's my old mates, the boys in blue. <laughs> I knew you were coming. I heard it on your phones. <laughs> I quip. It's all they can do to stifle their giggles. Thankfully, I look great in the top-rated handcuffs as I'm led into my new exclusive A-list luxury apartment in the back of their van. Close friends are already queuing up around the block to witness my debut in the stand at London's prestigious Old Bailey. And mates, old mates like Gordon Brown, Simon Cowell, Kevin Peterson and Amanda Holden are lining up to testify on my behalf, or would be if they'd only get back in touch with me. Cheers! <laughs> Bill Morgan! <clears throat> of course, all the charges have been dropped by the CPS, which, as we know, <clears throat> means there really wasn't any case to answer. Um... <clears throat> So, talking of no case to answer, let's get back to something serious, the war in Syria. And Private Eye needed to explain this to our readers. Why on earth have we gone in to bomb Syria? Well, it's very simple, and luckily the Prime Minister, David Cameron, was on hand to write for us a column explaining exactly where everyone stands in the present Middle East crisis. Ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister. It's all very perfectly straightforward. Britain is against ISIS, which I'm going to call Daesh. Britain is against Daesh, Daesh is against Assad. Britain is also against Assad. But Russia is for Assad, and Iran is for Assad. But Turkey is against Assad, and Turkey is also against Daesh. But now Russia is against Turkey, and the Americans are for Turkey. The Americans are also for the Kurds, but Turkey is against the Kurds. Iran is against the Kurds, also against Turkey, and Daesh, and against the Saudis. The Saudis are against IS, but Daesh, Assad, but are also thought to be behind Al-Qaeda in Syria, who I've not mentioned yet, but they are against the Kurds and Daesh, who from now on I will be calling IS. <laughs> so as you can see, Britain has only one option to bring peace to Syria, and that is to send in the RAF to bomb the terrorists in their heartland, i.e. Belgium. <laughs> I hope that's clear. Thank you. Thank you very much to the Prime Minister. Well done. Uh, sticking with politics for a moment, our last poetry corner, um, in memoriam, Charles Kennedy, 1959 to 2015. So, farewell then, Charles Kennedy. Decent, likeable, principled, funny, yet somehow a politician. <laughs> you led Britain's third party before they became the fourth. A man of great spirit, though, alas, in the end, too much of it. Cheers. Right, I'm afraid it's time for another round of Dumb Britain. Um, these are real answers to real quiz questions. These are taken from Mastermind, Egghead, Pointless, Tipping Point and 15 to 1. So, we're going to have all of the questions asked by Sandy Toxvig, uh, who luckily is here tonight, uh, taking time off from her new role as the presenter of QI. Ladies and gentlemen, Sandy Toxvig with an amalgam of Dumb Britons. Since 1997, Whitstable in Kent has been granted protected status under EU legislation for which type of shellfish that is harvested there? Gross! <laughs> which exhibition centre in West Kensington shares its name with an ancient site in Greece? The Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> which fruit is used to make banoffee pie? Apples. Of the seven ancient wonders of the world, what is the only one that's still standing? Mount Everest. What date is Christmas Day traditionally celebrated on each year? Wednesday. <laughs> the, name, the name of which Conservative politician is often abbreviated to IDS? 
Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Which Central American country shares its name with a type of hat? Stetson. <laughs> Bolivia is named in honour of which Simon? Cowell. <laughs> Who attended Downing College, Cambridge to study law, was one of the performers on The Frost Report and has played the character Q in a James Bond film? Arthur Scargill. <laughs> <laughs> River. In which river did John the Baptist baptise Jesus? The Amazon. <laughs> which German word meaning health is an equivalent of the English expression bless you and is commonly said to a person who's just sneezed? Achtung! <laughs> Dumb Britain too! <laughs> Very good, good. And thanks again to Marcus Berkman, who compiles them. Now, uh, it's not just populist quiz shows. We have populist columnists. And one of our regular columnists, uh, Katie Hopkins, <laughs> star of The Apprentice and the Katie Hopkins TV show on Channel Dave. Um, no, I've made that bit up. Um, Katie Hopkins writes regularly for us, and she has written for us again this Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen, Katie Hopkins on the joys of Christmas. I hate reindeers. Whenever I look at them, I just go, ugh, and vomit. I think someone must have hit them with an ugly stick. They're that hideous. Not to mention obese, lazy, wrinkly, and disgusting. What I'm dreading is all those reindeers invading our British airspace this Christmas, laden with so-called parcels. Parcel bombs, more like. <laughs> I mean, if only we had someone strong and good-looking who really meant business, like Donald Trump, to blast them out of the skies, then well, we'd all be able to sleep easily in our beds. And by the way, are all reindeers Muslim? <laughs> only asking, because I've never heard of an English baby called Rudolph, that's all. I hate choirs of angels. Those spineless sycophants with feathers for arms are just asking for a good kick up the backside. Sing choirs of angels. Right, and that why don't you just shut your ugly little gobs and give the rest of us a moment's peace. If it were up to me, I'd plug them into the mains and flick the switch. Job done. I hate that big fat baby Jesus. I mean, what's he doing? Lying around lazily in that so-called manger all day when he should be getting off his big fat ass. I think that's probably quite enough of Katie Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jan Ravens as Katie. Um, and again, I, I don't want you to think Private Eye is, is remorselessly um, down market. So... <laughs> I should point out, no, I should point out that we are the only publication that runs a regular Latin column <laughs> uh, to cover the academic world. We cover honorary degrees and recent appointments. Um, this uh, uh, was the citation of the new Chancellor of Winchester University. It was Alan Titchmarsh. <coughs> and this was issued by the Universitatum Venter Belgarum, formerly St Alfred's Catering College. <laughs> in 2015. <laughs> Salutamus Alanum Titchmarshum, famosissimum expertum horticulticoricum, <laughs> per multos annos in televisioni BBC, commentator explicendi artist cultivationis begoniae gladioliqua, et multis floribis atque vegetabilis, cum rubabi. <laughs> Autorem innumerabilis libros spinoforum. <laughs> Et expertissimus in artis arslicanis royalis. <laughs> Cum duco Edinburgo, princeps carolus, et caetera, et caetera. Gravelarius obsequio nauseaticum. <laughs> Gaudiamus, Alanus, Gaudiamus. <laughs> Mr. Tichmar. Uh, there's just time to get up to date 
and back with some politics. Um, many of you, you older readers, will remember a character in Private Eye called Dave Spott. Uh, he was extremely left-wing, and he was very big as a columnist in the 70s. Well, he's back. Uh, this is Dave Spart, the co-chair of the Neesden branch of Momentum Anonymous. The anti-capitalist pro-Jezza, stop the warming, anti-gentrification pro-avocado alliance. Dave Spart. Uh, Basically, we are witnessing the totally and utterly sickening victimisation of myself by the capitalist lickspittle running dog media for the so-called crime of so-called disloyalty against the so-called Labour Party, which actually involved nothing more than me expressing entirely comradely and legitimate support on social media for the democratic purging of all elements of the old neoconservative Blairite hegemony who do not accept the newly mandated Corbynite people's agenda via totally and, uh, total and utter alignment with genuine anti-establishment, anti-fascist, anti-globalist grassroots movements such as class action, class war, <laughs> class hatred, <laughs> bottom of the class, and the Green Party led by Caroline Lucas. So, <laughs> or the other bird. Thank you very much. To Dave Spart, I did say he was a regular columnist, but I've been told he's taking an extended sabbatical from Private Eye and taking on the role as director of Jeremy Corbyn's new policy unit, <laughs> Spart Think. <laughs> and we couldn't let any discussion of Corbyn, or indeed any discussion of politics, um, finish without a balancing view. This is the view of Sir Herbert Gusset. Um, the well-known writer of letters to the Daily Telegraph. This is his latest letter to the Daily Telegraph on this very important vexed political subject. <laughs> Sir, much as I enjoyed your editorial why voting for Corbyn will lead to civil war... <laughs> I was disappointed that you managed to overlook a number of the most worrying facts about Mr. Corbyn, of which those of us who take an interest in such matters are all too aware. May I give you a short list? Firstly, <laughs> Mr. Corbyn once had a cat called Harold Wilson. <laughs> the man who MI5 rightly accused of being a Soviet spy! <laughs> Secondly, Jeremy Corbyn's initials are J.C a deliberate and offensive attempt to present himself as the Messiah. <laughs> Thirdly, Corbyn has met many of the world's most unpleasant dictators and never once sold them any British arms. <laughs> <laughs> Fourthly, <laughs> Corbyn's current wife <laughs> sells fair trade coffee instead of upmarket stationery like proper party leaders' wives, <laughs> like the delightful Mrs. Samantha Cameron. <laughs> Corbyn's brother is called Piers, and he is a weather forecaster, proving that getting everything wrong runs in the family. <laughs> Corbin wears hats. And you know what my wife says about men who wear hats? Hats one day, knickers the next. <laughs> 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 
Sixthly, <laughs> and most tellingly, Corbyn has a beard. If Comrade Corbyn can't be bothered to shave, we must all ask the question, can he be bothered to run the country? <laughs> no! No! <laughs> no! <laughs> Nine! <laughs> Good night. <laughs> well done, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. I'm afraid that's it from us tonight. Please do come and uh, meet the writers of a lot of that stuff who will be signing um, copies of the annual in the foyer. In the meantime, can we welcome back Craig? and have an amazing round of applause. <laughs> for the rest of this stunning cast. Hey. Ian Hislop. <laughs>